Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me, every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Susanna Moore is the author of The Lost Wife, a novel. She grew up in the Hawaiian Islands, but has lived in New York for 40 years. Her first book, My Old Sweetheart, was published in 1982 and won the Penn Hemingway Prize for First Fiction and a prize from the American Academy. And The Cut was published in 1995 and was made into a film by Jane Campion. She has written two memoirs, including Miss Aluminum and Seven Novels. She teaches a seminar on myth and metaphor at Princeton University. Welcome, Susanna. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Lost Wife, a novel. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Would you mind telling listeners what The Lost Wife is about? Uh, It is the story of a a white woman who is abducted during the uh, Sioux Uprising of 1862 with her two children in Minnesota territory. Uh, And because she is sympathetic to uh, Native Americans and has many friends uh, within the Klan, She is then rejected and vilified by her neighbors and even her husband once she is is freed. Wow. Well, 
I feel like throughout the novel, there is so much uh, violence against women sort of scattered throughout, whether it's you know, the main character getting hurt in the beginning, her mother having her bed sheets on fire um, after a man threw a, a lamp at her, which of course then were candles, to the women who seem to have lost their minds in the camp. You had a line that was really beautiful, something like, let me see if I can find it. Probably not because I can never find anything. But uh, you said, some of the women do not say a word. Others have lost their minds and can no longer tell the difference between what is real and what they imagine. Tell me a little bit about all of the violence against women, women's roles in society, and sort of how you decided to delve into all of this. Sort of a big question. You can just talk for 20 minutes. That's fine. (laughs) No, I don't want want you to. You know, it's a theme in all of my books. Uh, It's less so in the early books, which are about Hawaii and my childhood growing up and very autobiographical, although it is in um, those books as well. And then, of course, in the cut is all about violence. I think what had happened and what stirred me to write in the cut was that I was teaching in prison as a volunteer and also working in a shelter for women and children in New York as a volunteer. And not only did I see it firsthand, but I began to read about it and to look at the statistics and the and the and I was shocked at the 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 level and the amount of violence that is directed toward women, particularly by men they know. So that interested me and and worried me. And and then the other books. I don't think there's a lot of violence in the in the Indian book or the German book, but certainly in this one, although it's not just directed toward women, you know, right. men oh, yes. suffer a great deal of it too, especially at the end of the book when the you know, 32 Sioux, 32 Native Americans are hanged, many of them who who were innocent. So. Yes. And where did the fascination with the Sioux community come from? Well, during the pandemic, um, I, I read an awful lot anyway, maybe five or six hours a day. And during the pandemic, that was increased. And I found myself reading captivity narratives, <laughs> of them written by women. I mean, of course, there's... I mean, I wonder why. <laughs> between my own captivity, but one... I'm hesitant to make because my own captivity was benign. Most of them written by women, many in the 17th and 18th century, mostly in the Northeast. Many of them died. Um, Many of them uh, were ransomed. Some chose to stay with their captors, had children, married, lived happily. And... When I came across Sarah Wakefield, she was a little different than the others. First of all, it was late. It was 19th century, 1862, and it was the West, which was unusual. And I also had read an article in the newspaper about the students at the Brearley School here in New York um, objecting to one of the narratives, one by Mary Rowlandson, about her abduction in 1675, because they felt it was, as they put it, a bit whiny. This is a woman who's been shot 
her child is shot through the bowels, dies in her arms, is eventually ransomed and, and then wrote about it. And to my surprise and and anger that really removed this book, Mary Rowlandson's book from the syllabus. So th- that got my attention, especially as I was full of curiosity, admiration, sympathy for these women and 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 no instance could I would I think of them as being whiny, you know, that what they went through was extraordinary. Sarah in my books does not suffer like that and does ally herself with the Native Americans, but uh, but does not stay with them. How did you know that this was removed from the Brearley syllabus? Sorry, say that again? How did you know it was removed from the syllabus at Brearley? Um, it was in this article. Oh, okay. I got it. I actually went to Brearley for a couple of, <laughs> like, until, <laughs> until high school. But anyway. It's surprising, isn't it? Yes, it is surprising. They were more sophisticated and more tolerant than that. Yes. They've gone through a lot of different leadership changes. I don't know when this fell or whatever, but who knows? Whatever. Interesting. Do you find it depressing to to sort of sit in all of the, these very difficult situations and, and write them? Or is it somehow freeing to you or cathartic or... You know, because there's a lot of difficult material. Not that you're the only author writing about difficult material, of course, but for you personally, how does that, how does it feel to read five or six hours a day and then turn to writing and, and delve into very disturbing topics for the rest of us? I think a lot of it is, as I said a little while ago, spurred by anger mm-hmm. and and um, a wish that, that I wish to explore and to explain and to describe what it was like for women, what it is like. Always when I'm writing, which is um, always too a bit of a nightmare for me, it's not easy. I dread it. I spend (laughs) an hour or two walking around each morning before I'm even able to sit down and begin. I write in longhand. Eudora Welty once said that writing, she didn't understand why people would come up to her and and casually say, oh, I wish I could write a book. It's just such a great life. I envy you. She said that her hair fell out. She vomited every day. She couldn't. She didn't know what people were talking. What people were imagining. So I don't vomit every day. <laughs> it hasn't come to that. I'm pleased to say um, it's one does when at a certain point too in writing a book it doesn't happen at first especially because I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, I don't always know what the ending is. I don't have a title. I'm not sure. I really just have a character and a circumstance, a setting. At a certain point, the book takes over and it has a life of its own and it moves you along. It captures you rather than than being captured by you. So that that is always (laughs) helpful. Uh, But... Mainly, what is it? Anger. I want. I'm always when I'm writing, thinking, what was really happening? What was what was it really like? What was it? What did it feel like to be on a, a packet on the Erie Canal, a woman with no money, really alone, not quite sure what would happen when you got to your destination, uh, afraid, 
running away. You know, what was that like? What would it have been like in 1855? So there was a lot of research, which of course is my favorite part. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, how how do you like to do your research? Or do you go to libraries? Are you online digging around on Google? How do you, what's your favorite way? Well, lots and lots of books. And yeah. I don't know what I did before post-its. I'm sure <laughs> I ruined a lot of books with underlinings and, you know, exclamation points. So reading online, you know, there was a lot written in essays, especially feminist essays about women in the West, about Sarah Wakefield, who was a real person. And she has her, had her own um, narrative, as, as I've said. But no one knew where she came from other than the fact that she lived in Rhode Island. No one really even knew her last name or how did she get to Minnesota? Well, so the internet, which I often um, abhor, proved to be extremely useful. And I, I had to change like, my, my attitude towards it because I found out that who she was and that she was married and had a child, which I use in the book. So she's a bigamist, which was not uncommon in the West. Interesting. So, so in that sense, uh, the internet was very helpful. And also that I had often thought about that, how in countries that still ha had wide expenses of land and frontiers, like Australia, in Australia, it was similar. There was there was no bookkeeping. If there were churches or or town halls, nothing really was written down. Nothing was checked. So there was a great deal of bigamy, a great deal of starting new. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't bigamist, having a completely new identity and history, a past, inventing your own past. Well, even in the book, when she gets together with her, you know, Yale medicine educated husband she's like he doesn't know anything about me I mean you didn't write it like that you wrote it beautifully and you know all the rest but just that she's like I don't even know how could he marry me he doesn't know my past he doesn't know any of my secrets he doesn't know my story and yet here we go you know off into the the moonlight or whatever and I feel like you know it's it's so interesting to have all those secrets it sounds it's almost like the, the premise of a modern day thriller, right? Where somebody comes and you don't know the backstory and what happens in the new relationship. And yet, of course, it's it's derived from, from truth here. Yes, and of course, it's very different now. What we are used to, we are accustomed now in many ways to knowing too much. Mm -hmm. And she knows very little about him as, as, as well. And the other thing the book is about too, which interested me, kept me going, was that it was about... It is about a woman who tells lies, who lies, mm -hmm. yep. and is believed, is trusted, has a life, gets away with it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And when she finally does tell the truth at the end, mm -hmm. uh, no one believes her. And that, too, got my attention. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from. So you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. Well, I have to say, I did not go back and read your autobiographical novels for, or from before. So what is the, what is your through line? What is the story I feel like I should know about you from your own life? Oh, what a <laughs> I grew up in Hawaii, where my family is from. I left home very young, too young, when I was 17. Lived with my grandmother in Philadelphia. Went to work in, in here in New York at Bergdorf's when it was quite different from what it is now. Was seen by a photographer, a designer, began to model, which I wasn't very good at at that. I was always a little bit shy, a little bit embarrassed, not not because I thought I was too fine, but because I I, I knew I wasn't um, at ease and it showed. Ended up in California for 10 years, married, came to New- lived in London for a while, came to New York, have lived in New York for 40 years. I teach at Princeton, a seminar each fall. My students are fascinated that I did not go to college. They find that almost unbelievable because so much emphasis has been placed on their own mm. collegiate life and and their awareness of what it means to be at Princeton. So what else? I have a child, a daughter who's grown up. I've been married quite a few times. <laughs> I live alone now very happily. And when did your hair turn white and is that a natural streak in your oh, hair well, no it, it was white very young in my 20s so I was dying not white but a lot of gray and so I dyed it for years and years and also for a while fell under the delusion that a permanent looks great so it was 
you look at pictures, I think, oh God. But it was the it was the nineties. So and the streak is not real. No. Oh, interesting. I have uh my mom's my not my mom, my my best friend's stepmom has the opposite. So she has all black with this one white streak in the exact same place. I feel like the two of you should get next to each other and <laughs> Susan Sontag was the first person I saw with that and thought how striking it was. It was a way not to be, what, not to look too old. It had a certain vanity. It it has a certain vanity in it. No, it's beautiful. It's very striking. (laughs) I'm I'm fascinated now by every, everyone's hair decisions as mine is starting to go gray. So I'm, I'm, I'm always talking to women like, okay, well, how did you decide to do that? (laughs) Should I let my hair go gray or not? Anyway. It's quite fashionable now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yours looks beautiful. So you just don't know. You don't know if it's going to look like yours or if it's going to look terrible. But anyway, these are obviously not the... I think you have a little while to go. (laughs) A little while. What are you working on now? I'm thinking about... I've been reading a lot about the Civil War and it alarms me because I do not want to write... I'm very careful not to write from the point of view of a character whose life, inner life, I can't imagine. You know, that's why in this book, it is not from, I, I don't I don't write too much about the Native Americans because I wouldn't presume to know what that experience would be. I, I know people do write about it, but in other books too, there's a book about a woman in India and the, uh, there's another book about a woman in Berlin before the war. It, it's... I've always chosen to write from the point of view of an outsider. Mm. I'm pausing because it just occurred to me, maybe I feel like an outsider. As a woman, I, I, I imagine I do. So I, I'm reading a lot about the Civil War. I don't know quite why I'm so obsessed by it. Uh, you know, there was a recent, uh, stati- uh, uh, John Meacham, the historian, recently wrote that uh, demographers now believe that 750,000 people were killed in the Civil War, uh, which means that many people across the country uh, were willing to accept that level of bloodshed in order to retain the power of enslaving other human beings. So, so that that made me think about it too. But to write from the point of view of a Southerner, I. And certainly not, absolutely not to write from the point of view of an African-American. So I don't quite know what I'm doing. I'm up to something. <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> I recently interviewed um, Drew Gilpin Faust, the former head of Harvard, and she said she had written a biography about a slave owner because she just couldn't understand the psychology and just like really wanted to delve into all the research and understand. And that now she's considering writing a biography of someone who helped, you know, the opposite side of that coin in the same exact time period. And I feel, I felt like those two biographies would be so interesting, different lenses. Through which to view it. Interesting. So interesting. And all the diaries of that period, there's a famous one by a woman called Mary Chestnut. So nonfiction would be altogether different fiction i mean as i said it's been done and and done well you know even something like gone with the wind which now is i find a bit unreadable you know it's so 
romantic and in many ways um, inaccurate. But still, it's uh, it was it's gone with the wind. I saw that uh, they're putting a new disclaimer page in the beginning of the book in the next reprints. Did you see that? Like, not no, I didn't. In Gone with the Wind. Yes, or? in Gone with the Wind. So, because of how African Americans are treated. Yes. yes. Well, yes, I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Gone with the Wind was one of the first books. I had a thing when I was a, a young girl. I loved to read all the time. And so I wanted to read like the longest books I could get my hands on. <laughs> um, so that was one in my, in the repertoire. The, the longer, the better. You said you read so much, obviously. What what percent do you think is contemporary fiction versus? Not very much. And I'm always vowing to rectify that and 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 do rectify it. But mostly it's, it's, it's reading uh, books that I've read before, or or you know I'm reading again at the moment. I'm reading all of Samuel Pepys' diaries from starting in 1660. So things like that. I think for me too, it's it's it sort of what would be the word? It's it it cools my brain. Mm. Read. Keeps in 1662. It's soothing and not, I don't come away distressed or anxious. Mm-hmm. Not because it's familiar, because it's probably the third time I've read it. But no, I read mostly things I've read before, Chekhov, I, everything I've read before. I'm now reading four and five and six times. Mm. Wow. Do you feel like you're on the outside of anything now? You were talking about. Maybe you write to work through your feelings of being an outsider yourself. Are there circumstances in which you find yourself an outsider right now? No, if I'm an outsider now in in certain ways, it's probably often by choice. But I do remember, I mean, I do think it has to do with being a woman. I do remember that moment in childhood. I was on my bicycle, my beloved blue Schwinn. Uh, and and realizing that being a girl was not necessarily to my advantage, that as a girl I was an outsider in this world of boys, you know, which I had before then been accepted. So that was a bit of a shock and, uh, and confusing, mm-hmm. especially growing up in Hawaii where there was not, you know, there were not, organized sports in the sense of soccer on Saturday. It was quite wild and quite free and children roamed around together in the rainforest or in the ocean. So, but when that division became apparent, that divide became obvious to me and I had to uh, accept that I was in some sense an outsider. I think, I think that's where it began. Hmm. Well, Definitely inside the literary establishment, for what that's worth. <laughs> as a, you know, I don't think of myself as that way, but it would be nice if if it's true. I also felt, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote in the cut was that after the first three books, which were about growing up in Hawaii and coming to New York, and I realized that I was seen as was called a woman's writer. Mm which meant that I wrote um, lyrically about, you know, flowers and children, motherhood. And, and I, 
minded that. And so I determined that I would write a book like In the Cut, something that was traditionally a genre inhabited by men, mostly noir, detective, story, dark. And I, when I began it, the, the, the female character was herself a detective. And I realized, no, that doesn't work. It's not quite, it's not, it's not, it's not doing what I want to do. So it, it was very much a book written by an outsider refusing to be so. Mm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah, I followed. I followed you. <laughs> so what are your plans for today after this podcast? We have a beautiful day in New York. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It's so beautiful. I live in the West Village by the river, so I will go for a long walk and then, of course, read, go back to my my peeps and read again, read again. I, I've learned, I, I, I've come to like my isolation rather too much after the years of the pandemic. So I'm trying to overcome that desire for uh, isolation and 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 it's probably not especially since summer is here and spring is here it's probably not a good thing <laughs> um so I'm working on that becoming more uh going out more yeah I'm very comfortable at home yes I, to... I really came to love my loneliness yeah. it's okay to still love it but I need to I need to um, get out more Okay. Well, today is a nice day for it. So there you go. (laughs) Susanna, it was really lovely chatting with you. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself and uh, congratulations on your novel. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.